Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Bible Beacon Broadcast. I can't excite you at- 
Double Beacon broadcast with Derek Lambert, your host. We have a special guest today. We have uh, Joseph Michael Vincent. He is the author of the book, The Millennium, Past, Present, or Future. And we're going to be talking with uh, Michael. I actually, uh, my, my computer just booted down. So I had um, his biography up here to give you guys a little bit of background. But Joseph, if you don't mind sharing your, a little bit of your background, I, I hate have to make the guests kind of present his background, but it just disconnected, brother. <laughs> well, well, first of all, I just wanted to say uh, that's one heck of an intro for <laughs> to hear that whole song from uh, Paramore. <laughs> Uh, that was that that was a, what a what a way to bring me into this thing, man. Usually, you know, you get about a ten to twenty second snippet of of a song like that, and about halfway through the song, I was like, man, this is this is going to carry all the way through. This is pretty cool, you know. So uh, anyway, for the audience, you know, it, that wasn't on purpose. We didn't intend for you to listen to that whole song, but uh, uh, but as she said, ignorance. Um, is your best friend for some people, and uh, and that's kind of the point of the topic of the show, in in the ignorance or the title of the show, I should say. So, hey, first of all, I just appreciate you having me on, and um, and to everybody listening out there, um, I I appreciate you guys following with me sometimes, or if I'm following with you through Facebook or through some of the articles that I write or whatever it might be. Um, we have a lot of great discussions, and sometimes we get into these uh, arguments and and things like that. Uh, but that's why we're here to end the ignorance, you know, to kind of move past um, lack of knowledge and to just try to progress forward and all that. So um, a little bit about myself. Um, I'm 35 years old. I've been a Christian most of my life since I was about five, and um, uh, that's led me to where I'm at today, which includes, like you said, uh, my book on the millennium, which was actually about a five-year journey um, of of research into, uh, you know, learning about preterism and then, you know, figuring out, you know, well, how does this fit into that picture if that's true? And uh, I've been a lifelong uh, skeptic, I, I guess you could say, when it comes to uh, being an apologist about faith. I've always, always, my entire life, from as far back as I can remember, um, have tried to um, to answer tough questions, in- including my own faith, about my own faith, or or what have you. So, um, being raised and learning about other cults and other belief systems, and being able to validate why they are or are not correct. Um, has also led me to do the same thing with my own faith. So um, that's kind of a little bit about me. I, I'm, uh, I've been married for 14 years. I have four boys, and I'm actively involved in sports, and I also help locally with our church here in Kansas City, uh, Eagle Creek Church. Um, uh, coming from another church for the past couple of years until we moved, uh, uh, Mercy Church. And um, so that's kind of my life, man. I'm a full-time uh, employee with uh, Honeywell. And, uh, and that's kind of where I spend most of my time at work with my boys in sports, with my wife and my family, and um, and then when I have time, blogging, and writing and research. Wow, man, that's amazing, Joseph. Uh, I, I saw in your bio that you also went to Liberty University in Virginia. Well, I didn't actively go there physically, so I was online with their um, their master's program for religion. And it was ironic because um, what led me to that was actually uh, – I, I actually started going to Liberty in 2005, in uh, early 2005. And it was while I was at Liberty that um, that I discovered preterism, the first time I'd ever heard the word, which is really funny because I'd studied eschatology my entire life heavily. I, I'd read every book that I thought existed, and of course I was very naive at the time, but um, I'd never even heard of the word preterism. 
and I was listening to a radio broadcast by Hank Hanegraaff, who's the Bible Answer Man here locally in the Midwest, and he was having an interview with uh, Steve Gregg from the Narrow Path. And it was about a two-hour interview, and they were taking questions and phone calls. And I was on my way home from work when the program started, and um, and when I got home and parked in the driveway, I literally sat there and listened to the entire program because I couldn't keep my, my ears off what I was hearing. And uh, But anyway, what led me to liberty in the first place was – um, that most of my life I had had such a hard time, um, you know, working through the eschatology and what that meant for 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 me and for the world. And I, there were always so many contradictions, and every book that I read seemed to say something different or opposite, you know, that the last book said. And uh, and the more and more that I researched, I just couldn't understand it. I couldn't bring myself to grips with with you know why it was so confusing. And I just thought to myself, you know, if if this God really does exist and He wants us to know this, and if Revelation itself says you know, any man who reads and understands and keeps the words of this book will be blessed. Well, I wanted to be blessed by it, you know, and I I, I thought for sure that we have to be able to have some way to understand this book, um, Revelation, in, including the rest of Scripture. And so uh, the, I, thought, I figured at that time, well, you, you must have to be, a, you know, an expert or a theologian or a scholar to, to, to really truly understand this. So I'm just a lay person, even though I've studied my whole life. I need to really dig deeper, and that led me to liberty. And um, and at the time, I didn't really have any idea of what real scholarship was, so I chose liberty because among evangelicals in the mainstream, that's a they consider it the pretty uh, prestigious, um, you know, futuristic college. I guess you could say a Jerry Falwell school, and at least within their circles, they you know it, it's a fairly well known college. So that's what led me there. But like I said, it was while I was there that I started learning about preterism, and that took me down a whole other path. Wow. So you wrote a book about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and actually the the millennium, like I said, that was a five year study. It was a five year journey. And it and I didn't I didn't start out with the intention of writing a book. You know, I, I didn't have that in the back of my mind that hey, I'm gonna write a book on the millennium or something like that. I didn't have that, you know, as a goal in, in mind. It was, you know, over the course of five years, in two thousand five, just probably two thousand ten or so, um my wife could tell you I spent more hours doing research, reading, and um, spent quite a bit of time actually on Pal Talk at the time. In 2005, that was a real big thing. Um, and um, uh, spent a lot of time. And in fact, Facebook didn't even exist then. I think it was MySpace was the big deal at that point. And um, so you know, there wasn't really an outlet for me to blog or to have these thorough discussions unless I just called somebody. So, um, you know, in the Yahoo chats and things like that at the time, look, thinking back on it, they weren't very good. So I spent a, a whole lot of time having discourse and dialogue through Pal Talk, and did a lot of internet research. Uh, was purchasing a lot of books and doing a lot of reading, and I spent so many hours doing this research. And a, again, for me, it didn't take very long to come to grips with the time statements and you know some of the simple things with regard to covenant eschatology and, and preterism and, and all that. You know the time the time statements were clear. I started to figure out the apocalyptic language that you know that's. That's pretty clear how how the New Testament authors were were acquiring or using the Old Testament language was fairly clear to me that that didn't take very long, but I still could not figure out the millennium any and actually the resurrection was another big one too, including passages like Acts one eleven and uh, you know he shall come in like manner. Um, there were some other passages that were really just difficult for me to wrap my head around and um I think that's true for for most Christians today when they start to question uh the futuristic paradigm you know it they have they have to be able to go to some of those harder passages and say, well, what does that really mean and and so um um 
the millennium was the result of five years of intensive research and trying to figure out if it doesn't mean what many um, theologians and commentaries and or commentators have said that it means. And, of course, they all disagreed as well for the last 2,000 years. There is really no consensus view on what it meant or what it even means. Um, but if if they – if they're wrong, if it's not correct, then how would it fit it within the preterist framework? And, and, and is there any resources out there, or are there any resources that I can turn to to find out what the heck this thing means? And I will say it was more difficult than I thought it would be, but you know, I would write article after article for myself. I wasn't even publishing these articles. They were just for my own, my own studies. And it was so that I could gather information and have a record of what I was finding. And I was literally just compiling all of this information in paper format so I had a record of it. And so I could go back and revalidate or, or prove it wrong or whatever. And, um, and the more and the more and the more and the more that I studied this, the more that I realized there's absolutely no way. There's no no way that this is dealing with some futuristic um, fulfillment or you know something like that, and 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 I will say that there is some there there are some uh, full preterists that make the argument. In fact, um, there's a there's a new book we're working on, multi-authored book that's supposed to be coming out in the middle of next year. That's going to be three views on the millennium from the full preterist perspective, and it's going to include um, uh, myself, Don Preston, William Bell are going to be doing the transmillennial view, which is the view that I present in the millennium in my book. And then there's going to be a. a, a uh, Dave Wilkinson is going to be authoring with Gerald Kratt on the um, – um, they've turned it the um, – oh, shoot, what is the millennial view? We actually had to create a new name for it because we didn't really have one, and it was close to bimillennialism. Uh, Kurt Simmons is going to be doing the bimillennial view in that book, and then um, um, the – not progressive. Um, man, I'm having a total mind blank. Um <laughs> Anyway, it, it's there's three there's three different views. I have to go back and look at the the title of it. Anyway, um, it's a generic it's a general view that the millennium is the kingdom, it's the eternal age. So there's in in their view, Gerald Kratt and Dave Wilkinson, the millennium consists of two millenniums. There's the millennium that I believe in, which they agree with, and then there's also a second aspect of the millennium in Revelation 20 that they are arguing that continues on in the eternal age, which is the church age, which never ends. Um, and so that's their view, and of course you have uh, Kurt Simmons who argues for his version of the, the bimillennial view, also two millenniums, um, but that they're both they both conclude by eighty seventy in his view, I believe. So um, yeah, man, it's it's uh, it's been an, an interesting journey to say the least, and I would say since about two thousand ten, um, I've sort of really truly wrapped my head around this idea that the full preterist covenant eschatology view is if if not correct it's at least more correct than any other view that I've ever studied um and of course you know like I said every single day I'm 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 always acting as an apologist as a skeptic to not only prove my views but to disprove them and that that usually either confirms or causes me to change my views you know as I go forward right let me ask you this the millennium it's got to be future right it's something in the future right <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't believe so. Um and and of course, um you know, one of, I'll be honest, man, one of the biggest uh, ideas that 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 got me thinking, you know, this has got to be fulfilled is in Revelation when John says that everything in the whole book was about things that were, things that had already taken place, things that are or things that were currently taking place when he was writing the book, and things that 
were about to take place. The word mellow there, and as it's used, is dealing with things that that um, uh, were soon near, ready to to occur. And so the entire the entire uh, uh, all of the contents in the book, everything from chapter one to chapter twenty two contain things that had either already happened, were currently happening, and were about to be concluded, or um, were about to take place and would therefore imply that they were going to be fulfilled. So if, if everything in the book was about to be fulfilled or take place, that includes the new heavens and earth and the new Jerusalem, you know, the city that comes down from heaven in chapter 21 and 22 and all that. But if, if the new heavens and new earth and the city that comes down in chapters 21 and 22 are chronologically after the millennium, well, how in the world could it be possible that the millennium was not about to come to a close when he was writing the book if everything in the book that he wrote about was about to take place or be fulfilled, which includes the new heavens and earth and the new city coming down? So um, kind of the way that I wrap my head around that is I say, okay, if, if, um, if everything in the book for John when he was writing it um, and, and we're assuming, of course, it was written in the, the early to mid-60s, around 64, probably A.D., um, or at least that the contents of the book are about that period of time, um, then if that's true, then that means that the, or that the uh, new heavens and earth and the city coming down would also fall, fit within that time frame of things about to take place. But if that's chronologically after the millennium, then the millennium has to have already either been going on or about to be fulfilled, and that forces or causes the millennium then to be something other than what a lot of futurists typically say that it means, which is that it's a very long time in the future or something like that. And I also found it interesting that this idea of the thousand years, as John calls it in um, in Revelation 20, or the thousands years, um, it's actually not a definitive 1,000. It's, it's more of a vague term than that. But anyway, but, but this idea that he presents of the thousand-year millennial reign and rule and all that is not found anywhere else in Scripture. There's no allusion to There's no mention specifically of that term or that idea anywhere in the New Testament other than this one place. And so that caused me to really take a look back and say, okay, well, certainly Jesus, when he was predicting the signs and all these things that would happen before the end, would have known that the millennium had to fit within that scheme. You know, in Matthew 24 and, and all of that, in Luke 21 and, and Mark 13, and, and all these other passages that are parallel synoptic accounts of, of, of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, Jesus obviously, when he, when he was giving these signs, or the Olivet Discourse, I'm sorry, when he was giving these signs and telling his apostles and his disciples, hey, all these things have to happen and then the end will come. And, and, and obviously, if, if he is God, like we presume that he is, and if he knew what signs to tell his disciples to look forward to, then obviously he would have or should have known that the millennium would have fit within that scheme. And if he knew that, then obviously if we believe as preterists that all those things were fulfilled in the first century, then that also then says, well, then the millennium must also fit within that. And Jesus didn't foresee a long-term, far-off millennium. If Matthew 24 is fulfilled and it includes all those things, everything that we find in Revelation tw um, uh, 1 through 22, then the millennium must fit within that first century context. And, and so that was really start, sort of the starting point. Okay, it, if those things are true, so that was my premise, then there needs to be other evidence to validate and to, and to 
uh, verify that the millennium does fit within the first century context. And, and that led me on that journey and that study to writing the book. And, of course, now I'm in my second edition, which goes into a lot of other aspects that I didn't even include in, into the first book because it's still a journey. I'm still studying that and finding more information every day. So people need to, people need to get this book. They need to get The Millennium Past, Present, and Future by Jay and Vincent. Definitely got to get it. Um, that's that's a must get. And you have been dis- – we've had our conversations recently, you know, on the phone. And one of the things that I hear a lot is, you know, you're really um, dealing with a lot of, uh, if you will, critical scholars. And uh-huh. you're trying to get into, you know, touch into what I guess scholarship is teaching. And from what I understood you were saying, that scholarship actually recognizes that Christ actually meant he was going to return in that first century – and they realized yes. that he, he was supposed to, but most of them have a atheistic view or they're definitely not religious or even believing in the Bible. They're just uh, looking at it without an axe to grind, and they're seeing that Christ did say he would come, but right. he didn't. Right. Well, you actually have sort of two camps, I guess you could say, within critical scholarship that I'm aware of. Of course, I'm not engaged with them personally, um, you know, actively at the universities because I'm not a student there or a professor, but, but I do have friends that attend those colleges and universities and, and that, I, that I dialogue with frequently. And in the course of dialoguing with these people and in interacting with their writings, which are you know, some of the most recent stuff that's coming out of, uh, of critical scholarship, and, and let, me just, uh, let me just kind of uh, uh, um, um, give sort of a, a backdrop to that. So <clears throat> I believe that critical scholarship is important for preterists to engage in and with. I think it's highly important, not because they're right necessarily about everything they're saying, or even most things necessarily, but but because um, critical scholars are coming to the table with with the um, the bias, or I, I should say, with the axe to grind, that they are both trying to prove and disprove whatever the information. Or let, let me go back. They're trying to let the information either prove or disprove whatever it is that it says. And that leads a lot of them to become, you know, critical, I guess you could say liberals and deny scripture and it causes some many of them to actually verify their faith in, in many ways. So there are really two camps of critical scholars and you have the liberal scholarship that's within criti- the critical schools and then you also have conservative scholarship or you could also call it the um the consensus views within scholarship and the non-consensus views within scholarship. And the consensus would be the majority. You know, the majority of critical scholars say this or that about one thing or another, and then the non-consensus say this or that about one thing or another. But the important thing is, whether you're liberal or conservative or consensus or non-consensus, is that you are engaging with their, mater- with their works. And why that's important is because every single day, these men and women spend – the, the vast majority of their life doing nothing but researching this information with, with firsthand um, documents. And when I say firsthand, not that the, the copies and the manuscripts are themselves firsthand, but that of what we have available to us to study and to research, you know, the, the, the ancient manuscripts and all of the archaeological evidence and things like that, these people at these universities, credible um, higher educational uh, uh, universities – are actually putting their hands personally on these documents and comparing them next to each other and that sort of thing. They're not just picking up a commentary book and reading it and then coming up with some conclusion. They're actually doing the work themselves. It's firsthand work. 
And that's something you don't find in the vast majority of you know seminaries and Bible schools and all that kind of stuff. You don't have that kind of interaction. Not to mention the peer review that takes place. Whenever they publish something or put something in writing, all of the other scholars or scholars in training peer review their work and check it for validity and accuracy and whether or not their translations are correct whenever they translate some document or whatever it might be and then try to interpret what that means or compare it to some other text or whatever it might be. The work of critical scholarship is so vastly important. And so back to your original question on that, what are they starting to or what are, or what have they been um, you know, determining? And I think what a lot of preterists don't realize when they first come into studying preterism and, and starting to sort of shy away from the futuristic dogma that you find out there in mainstream, especially American evangelical Christianity, is that they don't know because it's not real accessible to them because they haven't, you know, they haven't engaged with critical scholarship. They don't know that scholars have been writing about some of these ideas for a very, very, very long time. The idea that Jesus and the first century apostles believed and taught that he would return within that generation. And so as far as scholarship is concerned, the critical scholars at least, both conservative and liberal, the vast majority of them, in fact, I don't know of any personally. There may be some out there, but I don't know of any. The vast majority of those scholars would all argue, every one of them, would all argue that no, Jesus' words in the original language and in that context and in how they believed things would take place were to be fulfilled within the first century generation. You could not take a critical scholar today, one that is really worth his salt, you could not con- have him line up with an evangelical theologian who's in the mainstream futurist you know, churches today and – and get a consensus on that because the evangelical Christian, the futurist, will typically say, well, that generation means race of people or it means uh, you know, it spiritually meant the far-off future generation that he was actually referring to. There's no critical scholar that would agree with that person, with that theologian, none. And, um, and then when you go back and you actually do the, the critical study and the research of the language and, and what Jesus was talking about, how he said it and all those things, the person that's being literal, who's literally interpreting scripture – is the critical scholar. The person who's not being literal, who's spiritualizing the Bible and those passages, is the fundamental evangelical Christian. They need it to mean that. They need it to mean something other than than what Jesus really meant, because if it means what he actually meant, well then the futuristic belief system is wrong, and and many of the church denominations for the last few thousand years have been wrong. And um, not all, but many. Right? That that would pretty much make the church a laughing stock. And that's – wouldn't you suggest that um, what we see with Bertrand Russell is some of this idea of why he wasn't a Christian? He kind of says, look, the church is believing in this futurist dogma. Christ hasn't returned. Yeah. Just go ask the church. And yet he's writing about how Christ and the apostles absolutely knew he was saying he would return in that generation to those people, and yet he didn't based upon the church. So therefore we've got guys who are just saying, look, he didn't keep his word. Because they're misunderstanding what what is being taught because they're hearing what the church is saying rather than what the scriptures are saying. Right. Well, and actually, I really – yeah, I I agree with you. I actually think that critical scholars, um, at least in the early part of of American history, or I should really say in the last one to 200 years especially, critical scholars – really did, and, and actually most of them still view the church, the mainstream evangelical church, as a laughing stock. That's why they don't take them seriously. Um, 
you know, you might find more scholarship within, like, you know, the ecumenical denominations and the, you know, um, uh, Roman Orthodox Church and, 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 you know, things like that. But, um, but by and large, in the mainstream evangelical, I should say, really Protestant and non-denominational churches and charismatic churches and, you know, Pentecostals and the Assemblies of God and those types, in, in most of those denominations and churches across America, um, critical scholars don't take them seriously at all. They, they are a laughingstock. And it's not because they're all unbelievers. They're, they're not atheists, many of them. In fact, many critical scholars are quite uh, Christian. They believe in Jesus Christ, and they, they, they have um, uh, Judeo-Orthodox beliefs you know, that, are, that are found within the Orthodox history of the church. But they don't buy in to the modern uh, ideas of the second coming rapture stuff and all the things that are currently being taught in the mainstream churches um, that are widely popular today but uh, were not really in, in, the, in the history of the church at all which is a misconception among many pastors and teachers that, that it's historical, and it's really not. It's very new. But, uh, but overall, this, the critical scholars, their, their original purpose and intention um, in, in um, you know, thinking that the church is a laughingstock or, or why they believe that the church was a laughingstock is, yes, because the church has said, oh, no, this stuff's all future. And, they, again, they look back at the language and, and the text in, in Scripture, and they're saying, well, no, that's not what Jesus meant. He, he meant that it was the first century. And, and I think what they did is they reacted because of their own background. In fact, um, guys like Bertrand Russell and, and, and a lot of these other critical scholars, they were Christians before they were atheists, and many of them had this expectation of the future coming of the Lord. And rather than critically going back and evaluating the nature of that coming and what it should have or might have been, you know, been like, they ran with this whole idea that, well, um, the text means Jesus was supposed to come in the first century. The apostles taught it. They believed it. Jesus said it was going to happen. But his preconceived idea of what that second coming was supposed to be um, obviously didn't happen. And so that forced him into a position where he became an atheist. And and then also some of the other some of the other issues um, that he dealt with were like inspiration of scripture. He started to find that when actually looking at the manuscripts, you know there are discrepancies. There are things in them that for him caused him a problem because of his preconceived notion of what inerrancy was supposed to be. The the Chicago School definition, for example, Um, you know. And so for, for in his mind at the time, and for many other critical scholars, if the Bible um, contains what what we might say are errors or are you know problems with the manuscripts, I should say like that that don't necessarily agree with one another or something like that variations or things that are sort of inconsistent, whatever it might be. If those things are impossible, then for them scripture can't can't be true. It can't be divine or inspired. And um, of course, I don't agree at all with that definition of inspiration, um, let alone inerrancy. But um, but you know, but that's what led many of the critical scholars down that path to become liberal or atheistic or even agnostic, you know, about their faith. But not all of them. Not all critical scholars are atheistic or, or agnostic. You know, many of them, uh, especially now in, in, in later scholarship, are studying and going back to the drawing board on the nature statements. You know, the statements about how his coming would be, and they've gotten a lot of research and work done on apocalyptic literature and language and understanding that, you know, like when Jesus referred to his coming on clouds, he wasn't literally talking about coming down on physical clouds. He was, you know, using that language of the Old Testament. And and Paul reacquired much of that language the same way and applied it to, to his own generation and how that coming would take place and how the resurrection would be 
and and we talked about that the other day um, on yeah, the resurrection stuff. Yeah. Uh huh. That was good. I like how you tied it in because that that was a discussion I was going to kind of bring up was that these scholars are uh-huh. you're saying that these, these critical scholars are beginning to realize that we we can't necessarily fit this in a literalistic uh, you know physical um, you know explanation based on how uh-huh. they spoke. Realize this stuff was uh, obviously figurative or metaphor or symbolic, you know, these type of ideas were symbolic. And right. understanding how they wrote, how the Jews wrote, how the Israelites were, and how they would look at certain things. And there were different sects and different views of how they saw things. What I thought was right. m- most significant, just to stick with the, the, t- the text of Scripture, to kind of give this idea, is I was reading last night in Mark, uh, Mark, or Matthew 13, sorry, where he gives the seven mm-hmm. different parables. And he talks yeah. about how the people of ancient couldn't see. They didn't have ears to hear or eyes to see. But Christ was right. revealing things that were kept secret from the foundation of the world or from the beginning, Genesis. Uh-huh. They couldn't know, yeah. they didn't know this stuff. So it's almost like in the New Testament, what was really being said and told in the Old, the, the Israelites really didn't catch what was going on. So I wouldn't be surprised if we saw in writings of certain Jews or in the ancients, even before Christ, where there's a lot of literalistic type of uh, understanding of things, where they started to falter yeah. up to the second temple, and that's because they couldn't see, they could not hear, and so people get confused, and then the church comes on for 2,000 years, looking, oh, well, the Jews thought this way, so we should think this way, but not really right. piece together what the scriptures are saying, you know what I mean? Right. Well, absolutely right, and not only that, but, um, you know, the a lot of when you read scholarship, like I said, there's a consensus view on like the resurrection. I, you know, what did the Jews believe about resurrection and, and that sort of thing? Because one of the big arguments that was put out there for a long time within scholarship was, and this is one of the reasons they rejected Christianity, because of course, like I said, they they believed that the statements required first century fulfillment. But what they would say is, is well, how can you say that the first century Christians had a different view of resurrection? than the Jews, because all throughout Second Temple Judaism, you have this idea of bodily resurrection coming to the forefront, becoming predominant. We even find hints of that like in Daniel 12 and, and some, some of the other Old Testament texts where that's sort of kind of taking shape, as you will, throughout the Old Testament. Um, because you really don't find a lot of that in the Old Testament at all. It really, it's a later development within the history of Israel, <clears throat> this idea of physical bodily resurrection or restoration. But that idea um, accompanied this idea of national um restoration or or the kingdom you know coming back or be, being restored that sort of thing being delivered from their enemies and um uh, and then you also have this this messianic expectation where this messiah would come and physically retake the throne of david and there were different arguments about how that would look you know whether it was one king or different kings or a king and a priest and a and, and all of that you know are the different people is it the same person and and the jews had all these debates about this stuff but especially in second temple judaism this apocalyptic literature, you know, like Baruch and Enoch and, and all these different uh, books were coming out with this apocalyptic genre that uh, that started to develop this idea of bodily resurrection and all these other things. And so coming out of Second Temple Judaism, you've got the Pharisees and, and uh, you've got these other schools of thought, and, and they were highly influenced by that. And we even talked about this the other day, you know, even Martha herself with the resurrection of Lazarus when Jesus approached her. You know, what did she say to Jesus? And I think in John uh, 10 or 11, um, Martha said, um, well, Lord, Lord, yes, I believe he will be raised at the last day. 
you know, but she, her perception or her conception of resurrection would agree with that second temple idea that she did expect a physical body resurrection along with mm-hmm. a vast majority of, of your, you know, everyday Jew or whatever, even the Pharisees, many of them believe that. And, you know, the, the interesting thing, though, is – and I think and scholars are paying more attention to this now – is they're going back and they're saying, well, even though the Jews had this perception in the Second Temple period, and even though the Christians may have even been influenced by some of that in that first century, the problem with just saying, well, then that was their expectation is that at every turn and corner, this Jesus character, this Messiah, was correcting those perceptions everywhere you look. And so was Paul. And, and, and Peter, if you look in first Peter, Peter, talking about this new temple that, was, that, that the Jews expected to be rebuilt, referred to it as the living stones upon which the church was going to be established and was not made by human hands. And, and actually the whole – all of first Peter is actually a new temple dedication. It, it, the, 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 the language in his letter, man, is incredibly priestly. It is dealing with the reestablishment of the temple. And, um, and, of course, you don't really see that a lot in the English, but even in the English you can catch some of the phrases and his allusions and his quotes from the Old Testament, and, and you, you can see this idea of these living stones being rebuilt and put together and building up to the, to the, to the, you know, the house and all that, and which, with Christ being the chief cornerstone, and Paul talks about the same thing. And, um, but anyway, but Jesus himself… You know, when the Pharisees were questioning him or when his disciples, when he was talking to them about the kingdom, you know, he told them, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my, my, it, my armies would come and fight for me and all this, you know, and, and it, it's not made with human hands. It's not to be seen here or there and, and all of that. And well, you could go through all those statements of the kingdom and the nature of the kingdom, and at every single turn, Jesus doesn't just accept the second temple idea of resurrection and kingdom restoration and all these things. He redefines it. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. Like with Martha, rather than saying, yes, Martha, you're right, he will be raised at the, ra- at the last day. No, he didn't go along with her. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, shall live forever. That, that was resurrection. For Jesus Christ, he said, I am the resurrection. He didn't just go along with her perspective of Second Temple Judaistic you know, idea. And, um, and same thing with Paul. You know, Paul, being a Pharisee, would have had that same sort of Second Temple idea of resurrection and bodily restoration You know, it, whenever the new kingdom was supposed to, to arrive, which they believed was very soon. The, all the Jews, most of them believed that. Um, that's why they were trying to revolt against Rome, because they believed their Messiah was coming very soon to save them, to redeem them, to restore them, to establish this everlasting kingdom, um, to bring in this uh, this age of reign and rule where they would you know, rule on the earth, and that included resurrection, and, and many of them did believe that. But, but uh, Jesus comes along, and he overthrows those ideas, and Paul comes along, and, and, and just moving right on forward, um, after his road to Damascus uh, ex- uh, event uh, or experience – his eyes are covered, and then the blind is removed. You know, the scales are removed from his eyes, and he begins to see. And he spends three years in Jerusalem, learning and studying with the Christians that are there, and then goes out to the Gentiles to proclaim the hope of Israel, the resurrection. But again, Paul doesn't just agree with the Pharisees on resurrection. Paul's doc when he says, "I preach nothing but the hope of Israel," well, the hope of Israel was in the Old Testament. Before this idea of bodily resurrection, the bodily resurrection idea, and scholars all say this, developed during the Second Temple period. Well, 
basically no portion of our Old Testament was written during that period, unless you unless you agree with the idea that like Daniel was um, an ex eventu work, at least the second half of it, um, chapters uh, seven or possibly eight through twelve, and that it was reacquiring or reapplying the earlier passages to you know the period of it and Tychus Epiphanes and all that, and that's a whole other discussion. But but uh, but basically the entire Old Testament. And the hope of resurrection that's found in the Old Testament doesn't have anything to do with bodily resurrection. That was an idea that scholars all say developed during the Second Temple period with the apocalyptic writings and, and those sort of things. So those influences certainly uh, did creep into Israel and, and, and became a predominant view among the Jews. But Paul, for him to say, I preach nothing but the hope of Israel, would have been preaching the hope that's found in the Old Testament, not the hope that was found in the Second Temple period. And and that's what we find in all of his writings. Every one of his writings on resurrection overthrows this concept of bodily, physical resurrection, you know. And and um, unfortunately, some of our translations don't really make that very clear because of the words that we've chosen to use, um, you know, in First yeah. Corinthians fifteen, Second Corinthians five, and First Thessalonians four and five, and and all these other passages that we could go on and on about. But wow. Yeah, I definitely uh, I, I know what you're saying, and and you know it's interesting to me. I've had some conversations with Norman Voss, and uh, and he's like, look, he, we haven't talked on this topic, but you know, he just it just uh-huh. popped in my head as you were talking that if you want to read some real spiritual writing, something that you know it, you just can't miss how spiritual this is, is read Paul and understand what Paul's saying, because we know Paul wrote like in uh, Romans eight talking about flesh. You know, uh-huh. people get the idea of actual physical flesh. And so we know that Paul's not talking about actually, you know, looking at your skin on your arms type of ideas here. But he alludes right. to so many things may come off to the person's mind. Oh, this is talking about physical things. But it's actually yeah. referring to something spiritual. And that that's what I think you're saying critical scholarship's beginning to realize, hey, look, they realized, like you said, you know, around Second Temple time when the, you know the literature was going off, that uh-huh. these Jews understood these things to be physical. But the like you're saying, and in, in even in Jesus's day, there's people who still believe what these Pharisees were uh, propagating, if you will. They were they were teaching the people. Yeah. And Jesus is correcting his own disciples multiple times. Yeah. And Paul comes on the scene. He Paul even has to rebuke Peter for you know sinning and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it was just. It's amazing to see that throughout the Bible, you know. Well, yeah, not only that, but but the, the 40 days of Jesus when he spent with his disciples, it, you know, Luke says he opened their eyes to understanding about the nature of the kingdom. Well, if if it's true that the first century Christians would have already had a correct view of the nature of the kingdom, which includes the resurrection, by the way, because in, in, in the ancient Jewish mind, you don't separate the two. The, king, the restoration and coming of the kingdom would, would coincide with the resurrection and their nationalistic and individual resurrection, according to their Second Temple you know, view, views of resurrection and kingdom you know, restoration and all that. But, but Luke, <clears throat> when he records in, at the end of his book that uh, – that Jesus had opened their eyes to the nature of the kingdom and explained to them for 40 days what the kingdom really was. Well, think about that for a second. If, if, if the Christians and the Jews already had a correct understanding based on their second temple expectations of resurrection and, and national you know, restoration and what that's supposed to be, then why would Jesus have to, have to open their eyes to the nature of the, of the, of the kingdom and, and the resurrection? 
why would he go into that process of having to explain it to them and, and reveal it to them? And like I said, the, the, the words that Luke uses to open their eyes to understand meant that they didn't understand it before, but now they do. He literally spent that time with them to reveal to them what it was going to be. And they just simply wanted to know, well, Lord, when? When, when is this going to, you know, when's it going to take place? And he says, it's not for you to know the, the exact time, but he says the Spirit will come down on you and all that. And, of course, ten days later we see Pentecost take place, and, and, uh, and you know, so that didn't take very long. But, but um, yeah, you know, the, the, um, the, the critical scholars – and, again, we keep using the word critical. The reason we call them critical is because they critically examine material. You know, they're not just using a commentary, like I said, and just going off of something that some other guy re- read or whatever. They are critically examining the material, and and even when we use words like new, um, that they're or that they're starting to come to understand. Well, that's not even necessarily true. It's just that they're 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 starting to really truly develop these concepts R- right now. In critical scholarship, you have this idea of new Pauline perspectives that are being written about quite a lot. Um, several years ago, they were really focused on the Jesus movement, or the, the you know who is Jesus, or whatever it might be, and trying to determine you know things like um, um, you know the, the Q document and, and uh, within the Gospels, you know, well wh- where is the accurate testimony of who this Jesus guy was, and, and what caused all this to be recorded? You know, was it actually eyewitness accounts? Were they written later? And that was the focus several years ago, probably a, a decade or two ago. Well, now the focus is on Pauline literature and is on his perspectives and where he drew from. Where did he get his ideas and what did they mean? And and most of the books that I'm reading right now, and there's a lot of really good ones, and people really need to get a hold of these because these scholars know what they're talking about. It's not like reading some random church commentary. These guys are really getting their hands dirty with, with these texts and with what the Jewish hermeneutic, you know, where Paul drew from for his concepts and his language and how he was then applying those concepts. Because um, what we find all throughout the Bible is reacquisition or the reapplication of texts. So just because something in the Old Testament meant something at the time it was written to its original audience doesn't necessarily mean that it was used that way when it's quoted from later. It's reacquired oftentimes, not every time, but many times it is. And we find this, I believe, um, throughout the Bible. So Paul, in his writings, I believe he draws from the Old Testament and acquires certain passages and says they didn't understand it. The mysteries were hidden to them. What they wrote about, they didn't know. But they're being revealed now through us. And he says that. So does Peter. They both say that it's being revealed now to us to reveal to you what it means, and he tells you what it means. And so you've got all these Christians running around today, pastors and teachers and all this, saying, um, well, uh, we still don't fully understand these things because they're just a mystery and, and, and they're, they're spiritual and, you know, and all this stuff. Well, that's not true at all. Peter and Paul, they weren't confused. They said themselves that what they were saying – was given to them through the Spirit to fully reveal to the church and to their audience how they were supposed to understand all the things they talked about. And Paul said himself, he said, these things aren't easy to understand. Many of these things are difficult, but we're explaining them to you, and you need to get your head wrapped around what we're trying to say here. And and so again, many of those Jews coming out of Second Temple Judaism, many of those Christians who are being converted or whatever, even the Gentiles who were in the, the Greek and Roman you know they were they were Gentiles from outside of Israel, but but by and large their audience overall, 
many of them didn't understand the concepts because they never had understood the concepts. Peter and Paul said it. They said, you guys didn't get all this stuff. All this Old Testament imagery and, and you know stuff dealing with resurrection or, or kingdom restoration or whatever, all these promises given and made to you, they weren't given to you to understand. They were given to us to reveal to you at the present time. And that was 2,000 years ago. So at the present time, 2,000 years ago, Paul and Peter and the, and the disciples were revealing the true nature and timeline of all those things. And by the way, Luke 21 and I bring this up to Christians all the time, and I never, ever, ever get an answer. I, I have yet to have a pastor or, or preacher or anybody really give me a good answer, or any answer to that matter, for that matter, on, on this whole concept. That in Luke 21, Jesus told his disciples and his audience there listening. He said, if anyone comes in my name saying the time is near, or, the time, or if anyone comes in my name saying I am he, lo, he's there, he's here, he's in the desert, whatever, or saying the time is near – do not go after them, for they're a false prophet. And then he goes on and he gives them signs and indicators of when the time would be near. Not the exact day or the hour, because no man knows the exact day or the hour, according to Jesus. But they would know when the time was near. And by the way, that, that language is found in the, fe in the feast days, going up to the Feast of Trumpets. The priests, they didn't know the exact hour, so they would go up to the mountaintops and look for the, look for the sign of the moon. And when it was um, revealed, when the exact day was for the shofar trumpet to be blown and the judgment and all that. Would, anyway, that's a whole other topic. That's in my new second edition of my book on the feast days and the timeline of how eschatology – yeah, all that. But anyway, but Jesus tells them in Luke 21, he says – he says – um, if anyone comes in my name saying the time is near, when it's really not, don't go after them. Don't follow them. They're false apostles and prophets and all this. And, and then he follows up with giving them the signs and seasons and all the indicators of when the time will be near so that they would know when they could start saying the time was near, right? Well, then what do we find 25 to 35 years later all throughout the New Testament? Every single one of them says, holy cow, guys, look at what's going on. The time is near. It's at the door. It's in a very, very little while. The one who will come will come and will not delay. And it is the last hour, John said. We know it's the last hour, John said. Well, the last hour of what? The last hour for the end of all the things that Jesus said were supposed to happen right before the end would come. And, and so you've really got only two options, man. Jesus told them, if anyone comes in my name saying the time is near when it's not, you are not to follow them. So either the disciples ignored Jesus' warnings and lied because they all started saying about three decades later, the time is near, or they were wrong, which would be the same thing. They were lying or they were intentionally lying or they were just wrong, or they were right, and the time really was near. And you can't just redefine the word near and what Jesus meant there because that would make – it would make his warning to them pointless. If near can mean anything, if it can mean, well, it's really far off or whatever, like a lot of Christians today like to try to convince you you know, to think that that's what that means. If Jesus told them, hey, if anyone comes in my name saying the time is near, when near could really mean far or it could mean near really or it could mean anything you want it to mean, don't go after them. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would anybody care at that point? You know. So yeah. the warning – and then, then like I said, he goes on and gives them the signs and tells them what to know, what to look for to know when the time was near. Well, they obviously knew what to look for, so then they started saying the time was near. They believed the signs were all taking place before their eyes. And, um, and again, these are things that critical scholars have already accepted as true, the timing statements, the timeline of these events. 
these things are all supposed to take place within that generation. They all believe that Jesus said it. That's undeniable. Christians that say that that's not true, they laugh at them. They don't take them seriously because none of their arguments hold any water, and they won't even engage critical scholars on those arguments because they can't win. Um, so they usually just ignore them and, and don't even give critical scholarship the time of day because critical scholars blow them out of the water when they actually engage them on these issues. The problem is that a lot of critical scholars for years have not really fully gone through the work of looking at the language, which they are now starting to do, which is where we get into, like I said, the New Pauline Perspectives and um, uh, this covenant eschatology, which is starting to become a real big deal in scholarship right now at the critical schools. And they're starting to look at the language and and determining, well, okay, maybe maybe he didn't really mean that he was going to physically change to transform the cosmos. Maybe that means something else. And obviously most of them already have a good background in Old Testament language and imagery and all that. So that's what we're heading to. We're heading in that direction. Preterism is, without them even calling it preterism, it is affecting and infecting modern scholarship today. They don't like to say that because in a lot of ways that sort of validates Scripture. And for a lot of them, not all of them, but for a lot of them, that's a problem because they're, they became atheists or agnostics and skeptics about Scripture. And if this covenant idea or this covenant eschatology or this preteristic idea can, can help validate Scripture, then that's going to pose a larger problem for them in having to battle, well, we don't believe Scripture is true because we don't believe in Jesus. We don't believe in this divine aspect of Scripture or, or of, you know, that he was a true prophet or that he even maybe even really existed. But, but they'll say, but we know what the Scripture says it means, and it means he was supposed to come in the first century. But, so if now we can reapply these texts and say, well, then they weren't supposed to be cosmological transformations. This was all about national restoration and spiritual resurrection and all that, and his coming wasn't an end of the world coming. It was a first century coming. If we can show through the language of Scripture that that was already fulfilled, then now we have to go back and relook at whether or not it's even true. And, and like I said, a lot of the critical scholars, they are liberal, many of them, not all of them, but many of them are, and many of them don't believe. And so this is causing them sort of internal strife, I guess you could say, and they don't really want to go down that road. So it's important for us, I believe, to go down that road and to engage them at that level. Because we are people of faith, we can't prove everything, but we can show that there's validity using their own arguments of the preterist view. And that's what's really, really important for us to do moving forward. Sorry about that, Joseph. My uh, son just popped in the door. At this very last second, so I had to run him to his mother real quick so that she could hold him. Um, But so, okay... You brought up some interesting points because they realize that this isn't this isn't uh, you know earth shattering language. It's really going to actually happen. They're realizing that they right. use this stuff this way. This was kind of a common way of speaking, if you will, or a literary device, if you will, to explain uh, stuff in the scriptures. Um, right. But like, because we kind of mentioned before we were getting into this. We might speak about Genesis, and I know Genesis is a very whew, it's it's high content. You know what I mean? In Genesis one, yeah. it's, it's there's heavy stuff, and we see more is revealed about the beginning later on in the scriptures. And I think that's significant. Reading you know Matthew thirteen, where mm-hmm. he's talking about things that were not known. 
that were kept secret from the beginning mm-hmm. of the world. Okay, so from yeah. from Genesis. So there's things that weren't revealed about Genesis, if you will, um, about mm-hmm. stuff from the beginning of the world that are now being revealed in Christ's day. And mm-hmm. you know, w- what do you think about stuff like that? You know. No, I agree. In fact, I, I hold to what's a view called progressive revelation, which is where you know I believe in ancient times God spoke to people within the cultural context of where they were, because I just think that that's how God communicates to people to reveal truth through time. But I, you know, I believe the story of redemption that we find in the Bible isn't something that just um, you know God popped into Genesis one and said, okay, here's the plan, and just carried it right on through Revelation twenty two. I think that God was revealing Himself to humanity in such a way that was progressive. I think that he grow, he, he allowed people to grow with understanding to, to discover who he was, and that a lot of that stuff was mysterious. And we find, you know, that that's clearly stated, like you just said, in Mark 13. Uh, we find that right there. We also find that in, like I said, Peter and Paul's own statements, where they said that the mysteries of old were kept secret for ages and now, are now being revealed through us to reveal to you for your benefit and your sake. Um, so, and and whether whether you know they were re, like I said reacquiring or reapplying the Old Testament texts and then saying okay this is what they now mean, or whether they were actually interpreting them in the way they were supposed to be understood but just weren't understood, um, is it really doesn't matter. The the point is is that they said that they were revealing the mysteries that were kept secret and were now being uh, revealed. So either you believe that or you don't. Either you believe that they were revealing those mysteries that were mysterious and weren't understood before uh, throughout the Old Testament period, or they were revealing the mysteries. And if they were revealing those mysteries, then you better pay attention and listen to what they were saying because their interpretation is the only one that really matters, if they were truly inspired by God to reveal those things. So, um, you know, their credibility, their credibility was, as far as, you know, whether they were right or not, was validated by their testimony, which was confirmed through miraculous works and signs and things like that. That's how they validated what they were saying. And um, and so as far as Israel was concerned, um, they better had either believed or listened and heard those words and come to a conclusion that, yeah, they're right. We better change our perspective uh, or they were going to be judged. And so there was a requirement, a first century requirement, that those Jews, Israel, the ones that were given all of those oracles and, and, and the prophets and all those things, they had a, um, a mandate given to them by Jesus. He said, this generation has, you know, you've got 40 years. You better come to figure out the truth about all this because the hammer's coming down, and if you don't, you're going to be judged. And so for them, believing was a necessity it was not an option. It was not, um, you know, well, if you don't believe it, you know, it's no big deal. No, Israel, every single one of them was going to have the gospel preached to them to the ends of the earth, wherever they were, to all the lands. And that's what the Great Commission was, was to take that gospel throughout the ends of the known world, um, which is, you know, that's something else I address in my book, you know, what that, what that Great Commission was, how far did it really go, who had to, who had to hear the gospel. And, um, and they all had to hear it. And not all of them spoke Hebrew. They spoke different languages. So they had to hear it in different languages, and they had to hear it in different ways and, and forms. And and whatever was necessary to bring them to belief and faith, God was going to give 
the apostles to both condemn or to save them. They were going to be given the option. Hey, listen, you got no excuse. Here's all these miracles and signs. All these evidences of our testimony, we're revealing to you the truth, the mysteries that have been hidden for ages. We're revealing it to you and telling you what it all means. And we're going to confirm our testimony with signs and miracles and all these other things. And if you choose not to believe it, then that's coming down on you. And within that generation, you know, the time came, Jesus said, and, and Peter, Peter, um, or Peter said rather, that uh, um, you know, God was patient, was not slack that any should be lost, but, but was hopeful that all would be saved. So he gave them up until the very last minute um, of that 40 years to believe, and in order to make sure that every single one of those Jews had the opportunity to hear the gospel, to come back, to be uh, saved. And if they chose not to believe it, well, then you know, that was their judgment. Yeah, that's significant. Because, uh, you know, on the topic that you mentioned, progressive revelation, I think it's interesting uh-huh. that we see in, and I keep mentioning Matthew 13, because it's something just that popped up in my head, and it's so significant. Yeah. Because he's talking about, um, they're, they're wondering, why are you speaking? You know, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answers instead to them yeah. in verse 11 of Matthew 13. Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given for whoever has. And then he goes into an explanation. He quotes a prophet of Isaiah. Uh-huh. He talks about hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. And he goes on to explain the hearts of this people have grown dull. Uh, their right. ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, etc. And then he goes on in verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear right. what you hear and did not hear it. Uh-huh. That's it. That's pretty interesting because they didn't see these things necessarily in the Old Testament when they were given these things. And right. I, I know that... Well, Barnabas was left out of uh, you know the canon that we have for, for the church right. history and so forth. Um, but in mm-hmm. the in the epistle of Barnabas, he kind of mentions how the children of Israel missed the point of the dietary law. They missed the point right. of do not eat of the swine. It really has significance to a swine is, is is a creature, if you will, or someone who cries when they're in need. When you give them what they need, they forget their master. Um, right. You know all these animal elements. That they missed it, and he said that's because Moses spoke in the Spirit, which means God spoke through Moses. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised if Moses himself didn't see this. You see what I'm saying? That God was, right, yeah. God was speaking to him. And the children of Israel interpret and go, oh, we're not supposed to eat pigs. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I, I agree completely. And I think that uh, I think we find that, that pro- progression from Genesis 1 all the way through to the very end. And, um, you know, a lot of people just have a hard time believing that, well, you're telling me that you know Israel um, believed incorrectly or even some of the things that we find in our Old Testament was wrong you know, when God put it there. Well, well, yes, because we're told that they were. We're told that many of the things that they said, they didn't understand themselves, but yet they were still doing these things. You know, Israel was one of the most corrupt nations out there along with their ancient Near Eastern neighbors. They just were. And, you know, it took – Prophets being called out by God in the most odd circumstances to bring condemnation and judgment and warning, you know, um, uh, foretelling and foretelling of all these things that were going to come upon them because of how corrupt they were and how bad they were. And, um, 
you know, we've talked about the polytheism or the henotheism, the history that goes on there with Israel and what we find in some of the statements in our Old Testament that shows that they clearly were um, either in the practice of doing those things or that they had a history uh, prior to their national restoration, that they, they had a history of those things, whether it was due to their captivity or influences from the neighboring countries or whatever. You know, we find this all throughout the Old Testament. And, and God, in revealing himself to those people, had to work within that context. He chose to work within that context. That's how he revealed himself to them. And it was through the course of time that their, a lot of their theology changed, their beliefs changed, revelation of who God was became more clear. And, um, um, and, you know, and that's the point. The story of redemption wasn't fully revealed in Genesis 1. It took thousands of years from Genesis 1 to Revelation um, for that story to fully develop. And so you should expect to find lack of clarity in the nation of Israel and, and in the Old Testament at times. You should expect to find, you know, uh, just uh, problems everywhere throughout. You know, um, uh, Genesis. I mean, we go back to the idea of Genesis, and we're talking about documents that are so ancient that even the best scholars today are having trouble wrapping their brains around. Not only what it means and what it you know what it says, but also how did it get there? Where did it come from? We were kind of having this discussion last night a little bit uh, through uh, Facebook and a private blog, and um, you know JL Vaughn and some other guys were kind of talking about it. And and you know it is very important, but but what's more important to me, if Scripture is correct, if God is correct, if Jesus is right in Matthew 13. If Paul and Peter, who said that the mysteries were being revealed through them to, to disseminate to the people, if they're correct in what they're saying there, then it really is not as important to understand what it originally might have meant or how it became what it said. What's really important – Genesis is what we're talking about. What's really important is what Jesus and the apostles said it means. Because, again, if we believe what they're saying, what they're claiming about themselves, they said, well, the mysteries were being revealed to us. Whatever anybody ever thought Genesis 1 was about, meant, or how it was applied, um, we are revealing the truth of the story of redemption and what it all means now. And like Paul in Romans 5 and following, talking about the first Adam and the second Adam, what was lost in the garden is now gained in Christ. And so whatever you believe about the garden situation and the fall in Genesis 3 and all of that, whatever you think about all that, Paul said what was lost in the garden, condemnation through Adam, was now gained in Christ. That's the reversal. So if you're going to suggest that um, you know, Genesis 1 and the fall still has to be restored and recovered because it's not yet fulfilled and needs to be someday fulfilled in our future, this transformation of, of – the cosmos back to the garden conditions, which most preachers preach today. If you're going to make that argument, then you got a problem because Paul said that Christ came to restore what was lost in the garden and that it was being accomplished in his own day. And um, that restoration that he talked about had nothing to do with cosmos transformation. It had to do with life in Christ. It had to do with resurrection in him. It had to do with all of that um, justification, you, you, know, you name it. I like and, um, I like that the beginning there you know you're pulling this all the way from the beginning and uh-huh. you know the fact that you're using the garden we know this is right there in genesis right you know genesis 3 uh 2 and 3 if uh-huh. you will uh, 
all the way right there to Genesis 1, and, and you ask yourself, you know, when we see this New Testament language and this cataclysmic cosmological ideas that we see in Genesis uh-huh. day one, if you will, you know, if it's not to be taken literal, as in literalistically wooden, like the actual stars in the universe are going to fall to Earth or, you know, the right. sun's going to burn up the planet or something, then what do we do with, with when they're pulling this language all over the place in the New Testament from Genesis, uh-huh. and it has no literalistic wooden interpretation, then maybe what we're seeing, as the Jews would believe, if we read what some of the Jews are writing about Genesis 1 being actual cosmological, physical, and not, not uh-huh. anything more than we might be running into a problem not seeing what Genesis 1 is actually saying and not looking to the New Testament to understand what it's saying. And one of the things right. that kind of reminds me that's interesting in Isaiah 40, um, I was talking to Tim Martin about this in a private message, and, uh, you know, I could go through the whole, you know, chapter, but he says in, in verse 8, remember this, and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Now catch this. Declaring the end from the beginning. So there's a declaration in the beginning of the end already. Mm-hmm. And people are right. seeing this. And he goes, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do my, all my pleasure. So from the beginning, we see God declar- He's declaring the end from the beginning. And I think that's yeah. well spoken of in the six days and the seventh day God rests, which is the true Sabbath uh-huh. from all his work. And so th- this just, uh, it, there's a whole lot to this concept that, you know, we can look at it woodenly, but I think we're missing the mark and not seeing what's right. going on in the New Testament, you know? Well, yeah, agreed. And and it, it is it is difficult for us when you just go look at the Old Testament. It's difficult for us and even for scholars a lot of times to to sort of distinguish what different books of the Old Testament meant or, or how they're applied or whatever. Because you know there isn't like one consistent Jewish hermeneutic. You know, a lot of times different ideas or genre of writing were written for different purposes and at different times and within a different cultural context. And so, if you're just opening your Bible and reading this English you know, rendition, uh, uh, you know, with the, with a modern Western concept of what you think it's all supposed to point to or mean, well, you're going to miss the boat completely. Um, but, it, but you know, again, the, the Jews themselves didn't even understand half of what they were writing about or what it meant or pointed to because it was given by God progressively over time to point to the greatest and greater reality of what ultimately was being revealed in the first century through Jesus and through the apostles. And, um, um, and so, you know, to think that you know the the end or whatever um is still in our future today um is completely divorcing the context <clears throat> of what Paul and the apostles were talking about because they were dealing with things that had to do with Israel <clears throat> and like I said national deliverance and all of that and um and, and you know like you talked about the the language the stars and the sun and the moon and, and all of these apocalyptic ideas that the New Testament writers were, were referring to and what they were saying, well, this that topic itself is one of the most elementary, basic issues within scholarship, at least at this point. You know, Most of them know and understand that that language is Old Testament apocalyptic language, that that, test, that, that language was commonly used, not just in the Bible in the Old Testament, but in the um, uh, pseudepigraphal writings and, and, and all of that in the extra-biblical apocalyptic works of the Second Temple period. The language that we see throughout our New Testament is not or was not some new invention. What they were writing 
was the same language that that audience was very familiar with in that time. And, you know, those symbols, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, and all these things would fall, not give their light, would turn to blood, and all that kind of stuff. That's all dealing with national or nationhood, with national leaders and rulers. And just like in Joseph's dream when he was talking about how he had the dream of the sun and the moon and the stars and how they all bow down to worship him and all that. Well, those were talking about the tribes of Israel and, and his brothers and his parents and how they were going to physically worship him. Or, or later on, they would, they would bow down at his feet, and they did. And, uh, and his father and mother and brothers understood quite well what he meant when he referred to those symbols. He wasn't referring to literal cosmological signs. They represented them as the leaders of Israel. And, um, you know, and again, in the apocalyptic literature, we find those symbols all throughout being used. Yahweh is referred to as the rider on clouds. You see that in Isaiah 19 and elsewhere in the Old Testament. And um, that idea of the rider on clouds is not unique to the Old Testament. It's also found in apocalyptic literature. It's found in ancient Near Eastern writings. Um, scholars right now are also looking at some of these other statements that they're finding in, in uh, uh, Ugaritic, or, uh, the Ugaritic texts and, and things like that, inscriptions of rider on clouds given to other gods. Other gods in the pantheon of the polytheistic religions were also referred to as those who rode on clouds. They were the council of the gods who resided, they believed, above the clouds. And, uh, and so this idea was very, very common in the ancient world. It was an idea that the New Testament writers were very familiar with already, and that when they wrote, they obviously had those things in mind, and now we're applying them to Jesus. They were messianic. So now, rather than the gods being the rider on clouds, or rather than Yahweh of the Old Testament being the rider on clouds, guess what? Jesus says, I will come on clouds of heaven with the glory of the angels, the messengers, and will come in judgment. And so when he said those words, they didn't think of those words as, oh man, someday Jesus is going to physically come down on a cumulonimbus cloud and is going to physically judge us and transform the cosmos. That's not what they thought at all. And most, you know, like I said, Christians today don't have any concept of what that even means because they you know, haven't really done a whole lot of research in that area, which I wish they would. But Jesus, when he says those words, is speaking to Pharisees and Jews that knew their Old Testament like the back of their hand, and they knew their ancient Near Eastern uh, culture very well, knew, knew it very, very, very well, were very familiar with apocalyptic literature, and they would have understood that what he said when he said, I'm going to come on clouds, is that he was referring to himself as the one who was in the second heaven, the one who rides above the clouds, who comes down from those clouds and judges people and nations. And I'm going to come and judge you. That's what Jesus said to them. They, they didn't understand it as a physical event as far as a, a body of Jesus coming down out of a physical cloud. They understood that he is God, or that he was claiming to be God, and that he's going to come in judgment upon them as a nation. And they wanted him killed for it, because it was blasphemy. And, um, and so if Christians can't get their minds today wrapped around these concepts, they're going to continue to to disseminate this nonsense of future rapture, end times, coming on clouds, beliefs that unfortunately many Christians for two millennia have believed in, uh, not necessarily the rapture view in that sense, but um, you know the second coming idea um, that, that permeates the church today, especially in America. It's really, really uh, rampant here, and it's starting to become rampant in even places like Africa where charismatic churches are going over there 
and spreading that dogma you know, in, in other nations. But but by and large, it's an American thing. That's that's funny, Jesse, because you know we we as American Christians or anyone you know this modern context with futurism that's uh, a lot of these mm-hmm. conservative churches that you go to and so forth. Um, it's kind of funny. We'll read passages like Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, or uh, right. you know, uh, Revelation 1, 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will mm-hmm. mourn because of him. So, amen. Sometimes we think with our modern, like the way I used to think as a futurist, I thought that was a good thing. Like, I was like, Behold, yeah. he's coming with clouds. Like, yes! And yeah, every I eye know. will see Great, but we don't realize what he's saying is this is doom and gloom for these jokers. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not- funny you mention that because when I was growing up, I used to take passages like in the Old Testament. It said you know knowledge would increase to and fro, and then I would connect a passage like that to Revelation where it says that every eye would see him, and I would say, oh man, that must mean that technology is going to be so great that when he comes out of the clouds, that there will be broadcasts across every television and. And station in the world, and every single person will have access to see the event, no matter where they're located. You know, and um, and and you know, and then I would I would interpret you know different symbols in Revelation as though, oh well, John didn't understand the visions he was he was seeing, so he had to describe them in the best language he he could. And you know, he he was seeing you know helicopters and and um, you know these different attack vehicles and things like that, and these large armies, and he was just explaining them the best way he could, you know, because he didn't understand what he was looking at because it was so far into the future. You know, and, and I used to make those arguments. I used to say that kind of stuff all the time, and it's um, now looking back, it's actually kind of, it's really sad. I mean, it really is some of the most non-academic, non-researched um, – uh, I hate to be so critical to say it like that, but I look back at some of the stuff that I taught and believed – and it's real. It really is laughable. It's it's a joke. Um, and no, like I said, no no scholar no scholar takes any of that stuff seriously. None of them because it, it doesn't have anything to do with biblical language, apocalyptic um, language or genre or any of that stuff. And John wasn't confused when John wrote the Revelation. He wasn't confused at all. He wasn't just seeing random visions. He was writing down. I mean, the entire structure of the book of Revelation is a chiastic structure, seven steps. I mean, there's, the number seven is throughout Revelation. It's the most Hebrew book of the entire New Testament, and probably was actually written in Aramaic or Hebrew to begin with. Of course, we, you know, now we have the, the, um, uh, the Greek translation of it. That's all that we still have. But the, the idioms and the statements and the structure of the book of Genesis are by far, it, it is a priestly book. And when John wrote it, he was a Jew. He was a, I believe, a priest, or was at least very, very closely tied to the. Yeah, I, I actually think it was John Lazarus, who is John Eleazar, who was a priest, uh, who was the disciple whom Jesus loved, um, because he had access to yeah. the inner court. Of, of uh, anyway, we can go on about that later. But, but um, this book of Revelation, the, it was no accident that John used the symbols. And the language that he used. It was no accident that he described everything he described exactly the way he did because he intended for it to be written the way it was because it, it's a Jewish book. And he knew that his audience that would be familiar with those symbols and ideas were Jewish themselves and would understand what he was talking about. He had to write it the way he wrote it in apocalyptic form because it was intended to be written that way either so that they could disguise the message so that the letters could go throughout the the seven churches so that if Romans caught them, they wouldn't kill them for it. Um, 
and that would be true whether it was written before 8070 or, or as an ex eventu document um, after 8070. It really doesn't matter. There was persecution going on, and it was widespread. And, uh, and either way, the enemy were the Jews and the Romans, and they were in cohort together. So no matter what, regardless of when you believe the book was written, John wrote the book intentionally and knew every single thing he was describing and what it meant and alluded to. He was not confused. He wasn't dumbfounded by the visions. He knew exactly what he was writing. He wrote it specifically the way he wrote it intentionally. And that's why he says anyone who reads the words of this book and understands them and practices or follows the words will be blessed. Well, if John himself didn't understand what he was saying, then he wasn't even blessed. I mean, the book itself is called the apocalypse, the revelation, the revealing of Jesus is what the is what the word means, the apocalypse or the apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ. The word in the Greek means the revelation, the revealing, not the hiding for two thousand years. You know, it's not the let's keep it hidden for a long time until some final generation can understand it. It, it was the revealing, the 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 the, the, um, the disclosing, or the uncovering. You know. And um, so, you know, I hear this all the time in churches and, and ministries and, you know, from pulpits and stuff, you know. Well, John was just describing things he didn't understand, so he used these really crazy images. No, no, he didn't. Every image that he uses is found in the Old Testament. It's found in apocalyptic literature that he was very familiar with already outside the Bible. And the structure that he used was the same structure used in Genesis, the same structure used in Ezekiel 37 and elsewhere, and and actually throughout the temple books are chapters, the same structure that's found in Isaiah and, and elsewhere. And if we don't understand that context for the book of Revelation, then you're going to be completely lost. And unfortunately, many times our our pulpits are filled with pastors who preach messages of hope, and it's a false hope. And just like um, Proverbs 13:12 says, a hope fulfilled is a tree of life, and a hope delayed is um, um, oh shoot I'm trying to quote the thing now and I'm not even getting it right. A uh, hope fulfilled is a tree of life, and a um, um, a hope delayed hope is to... basically a cancer. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, forgetting the word I, he used, but it's... about you mentioning uh, the chiastic structure in Revelation, and we see in Genesis one there's a chiastic structure. You know, day one fits in with day four, day two fits in, fits in with day five, and day three fits in with mm-hmm. day six. There's Fantastic yeah. structure. What I thought was interesting, and it's kind of funny, I don't know if you saw that little video I posted in the group last night, but um, I was online reading and, and reading about Milton Terry, but I called him Terry Milton. And um, okay. <laughs> and uh, Tim Martin wrote me, and he's like, who's Terry Milton? Like, joking with me. And I was like, oh, Milton Terry, because I was reading his name online, and they actually had his last name first. And so I just read it and right. wrote it down exactly as it was already there. So uh, it's yep. Milton Terry in eight. 18- in 1898, he wrote this pertaining to his presentation uh-huh. on Genesis. And and you've heard this before, I'm sure, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. And I think this is interesting. This sure. is a guy who wrote a legacy on hermeneutics. This guy is excellent when it came to biblical uh, apocalyptics and hermeneutics and stuff. And he yeah, says sure that, is. He was great. Yeah, he says, but if these opening chapters of the Bible are a revelation of God's creative relation to the world, may they not be apocalyptical in character? Is it not fitting that mm-hmm. the canon of Scripture should open as well as close with an apocalypse? So that's why I, I don't have a problem seeing it being apocalyptic literature, 
therefore very prophetic and symbolic in what it's trying to present in Genesis 1, rather than trying to take this wooden, literalistic view uh, and, and, and really trying to fit that in, and then going later on and seeing these, this same language from Genesis 1, decreation language of the things that are creation language in Genesis 1, it makes me go, well, why aren't uh-huh. these literal, wooden, actual things that were created in Genesis 1 being decreated for real and literally in the New Testament? Why is it all of a sudden yeah. changed? Well, to, to properly engage that idea, you, you wouldn't really call it apocalyptic. I mean, you could call it apocalyptic as far as Genesis goes, but to, to be honest, you know, the, the language and literature of apocalyptic, it, it really was sort of a second temple um, um, idea. Not, not that apocalyptic ideas or that sort of language was never used before that. It certainly probably was, and it, but, it, but it was fully developed really during the second temple period. So, um, you know, Revelation was written with that in mind. However, like you said, you know, obviously Revelation was written with the idea from John himself that its purpose is to close and to fulfill what the whole thing started with, which was Genesis. But, you know, Genesis itself was not written during a period of apocalyptic literature. You know, it was written during the period of the ancient Sumerian or Semitic, uh, you know, texts and, and, and things that you know, you'd, you'd also find in the ancient Near East around the same time period. And we don't know everything that there is to know about how it originated or how it changed form or how it came to be what it finally was. But the texts that we currently have um, in the form of Genesis chapter 1 and following, um, like you said, certainly, certainly has um, overtones of the symbolic apocalyptic language that we find in Revelation. But I don't think it's because it was necessarily intentionally written with that in mind. I, I believe that John in Revelation using apocalyptic language, establishes that same long-standing seven-step chiastic structure to, um, uh, to reverse all the things that we see you know, in, in, in Genesis 1. So yeah, Genesis 1, you have the creation, Revelation, you have the decreation and the recreation and all of that. And um, they, they have to tee off of one another because John intentionally was writing with Genesis in mind. Um, and again, if you don't, understand where that is, and that's a whole other study in and of itself, but um, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about BCS and the Beyond Christian Science guys is, um, you know, when you read guys like Walton, and when you read guys like C.J. Uh, uh, Collins, or uh, uh, John, is it John C. Collins, or C.J. Collins, I can't remember off the top of my head, but anyway, Collins, I think it's C. John Collins, uh, Collins and Walton, and a lot of these other commentators that I'm starting to research that are dealing with um, the creation story, a lot of these guys really don't hit a whole lot on Revelation. They just sort of go through the ancient Near East and they go through the, the functionality of the context and, and they go through some of the language and what it means and how that applies. You know, But to be honest with you, their lack of attention on dealing with Revelation on the other side of it, I think uh, is one of the reasons why many of them are still so hugely... Um, confused, or at least why they're still falling short of ultimately where uh, they they could progress to, which I believe would be the covenant eschatology or the preterist perspective. And that's, like I said, one of the things I love about BCS is not that they're right about everything, um, because I don't know that they are, but at the very least, they they place a focus on the end from the beginning and cause you to to really take a good long look at well obviously if the beginning is 
the story of redemption where it started and the end is the end of the story of redemption where it ends, then they should be related, and they are. And uh, they place a, a huge emphasis on that aspect, and I think it's the right emphasis. And uh, and I think the fact that they're at least having that conversation is is very good. It's very important to have. Wow. Let me um, let me wrap this up with you because we could go on until two hours, but instead, um, oh, we lost you for a second. Up, oh, he's gonna end up calling me back. Uh, we've already talked about that, but. Um, yeah, you know, Joseph, he's got a lot of information stored up. He's wrote the book, The Millennium, Past, Present, or Future. He's got some more works that he's going to be working on. And, um, you know, I, I love talking with him because he's, he's, he leaves a general enough, um, you know, idea to you so that you can actually, uh, you know, go ahead and continue studying yourself without having to just believe what other people are saying. He gives you the tools to continue. And he's writing me now. He says, I lost you in 90 minutes. <laughs> I'm letting them know. Just call back. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, I was going to say, you know, it's interesting when we look at Revelation based on what he has said, how if if John is writing and there's the new garden scene, we see this stuff as symbolic and spiritual in nature and all this stuff, and he's pulling from Genesis, and, that, and we ask ourselves, well, it's got a chiastic structure. It seems very prophetic uh, of things based on now that we're looking from the New Testament. See, if we didn't have our New Testament in mind, I think we'd be stuck with a literalistic interpretation without any possibility of seeing anything prophetic. Um, but just because Israel or Jews may have uh, you know, you know, certain ideas about something, that doesn't mean it's right. Just like Joseph brought up an interesting point. Oh, I think he called back. Where he is. Oh, there he is. There he is. What's up, brother? Hey, man. Sorry about that. Cool. Um, but just I was kind of mentioning how, you know, just because the Israelites may have believed in certain things, just like, uh, you know, Martha believed the resurrection was physical and literal, doesn't mm -hmm. mean that right. that is true. And I think what futurists, uh, you know, if you're a dogma and a lot of people who read their Bibles, they'll read Martha and they'll go, see, he'll be raised up in the last day and all these ideas mm -hmm. and yeah. things that are being taught. And they're right. getting stuck on it. So, they, right. you know, we have people today who still practice dietary laws. It's really strange mm -hmm. how they do that by reading their New Testament and don't get it, unless they just throw Paul out. But the point is that they're still practicing these dietary laws, and I think they missed the point. See, maybe they understood at that time, and God in their ignorance had mercy and had long suffering and so forth, but they didn't understand these things um, mm -hmm. in their full essence. You know, they're, they're, they're worried about eating a pig, simply put. Um, and they don't realize that, that there may be more to that idea. And I think there is by the Epistle of Barnabas kind of points that out. I was going to ask you, um, let's wrap this up because we can go to an entire two hours. But I was thinking people need to know where to get your book. They need to know how to contact yeah. you. They need to be able to, you know, what's your email, what's your websites, what, what, you know, all the stuff they need to know about you, things that are up sure. and coming, um, all that kind of stuff, if you don't mind. Yeah, so um, again, my book is A Millennium Past, Present, or Future, and um, the second edition I'm hoping will be ready by next year. It may still be two or three years away because I'm really trying to engage as much of a critical scholarship on this issue as I can, and I keep I keep finding more and more information, and so it just keeps delaying my you know expected publishing date for the next edition. But um, I'm also working on a book on the resurrection. I've actually 
done two extensive articles which are not actually complete. They're sort of in a final form right now, but I'm I'm going to be including a lot more references and, and research on them. But um, on Acts 111 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, dealing with uh, you know the rapture view and then being caught up and what that really means. Um, and then the Acts 111, when the in like manner, you know, he shall come in like manner. Um, the resurrection book is going to really deal a lot with that. It's going to deal a lot with um, 1 Corinthians 15 and the resurrection there. Um, and, and, you know, as many resurrection passages as I can deal with. And also, I really try to work quite a bit on what that Jewish hermeneutic was, how they understood um, and expected resurrection beliefs to occur, and, and then how the Christians, you know, sort of took off from that and, and what uh, what Paul and the apostles believed about that um, and what they taught. So um, my next book is on the resurrection. I think they're two of the most important topics within Christianity, not to mention covenant eschatology or preterism, um, or what a lot of critical scholars would call realized eschatology possibly, um, is the millennium and the resurrection. Like I said, the, the two biggest and most critical issues to understand, to help you understand how everything sort of fits together within that first century context, because they're the hardest ones to understand all the way through, because there's so much uh, to talk about. So uh, my book right now, you can purchase on Amazon.com. You can also purchase it at uh, BibleProphecy.com, which is on Preston's um, bookstore. And um, and then my books in the future, hopefully, like I said, in the coming couple of years, will be, will be published. And, and in the meantime, I still publish articles related to some of the content that will be in my book. Um, and I engage on Facebook quite a bit. You can find me uh, on my Facebook page uh, or in the Preterist Theological Society group if you're a member there. Uh, it's the PTS, Preterist Theological Society. You can join that. Um, and as long as you keep it respectful and cordial, we, we welcome you in there. Um, and, you know, just stay on topic with preterist ideas and things like that. Um, but I don't really have a website right now. I probably will in the future. I'm just – I'm so busy with um, – uh, I'm actually building a website right now for my son's baseball team, uh, both of my son's team for the Raymore Rebels, and uh, I coach sports, so I'm very involved and, and really busy doing that. Um, and I also help Don with some of his stuff as far as uh, his website maintenance and things of that nature and, and design and all that. So I'm a busy guy, man. And you know, when you're 35 and you got a full-time job and four boys and you're coaching two sports and you're doing a lot of other things and you're still trying to write. Um, and dialogue with people and have as much discussion as you can, you know, not to mention have a life on the side, you know, with your wife and go to movies and watch shows and whatever. My time is so valuable, and so, uh, <laughs> at least to me it is. So it, it's kind of hard to, to get everything done that I want to do. It, sometimes it takes longer than I'd like, but, um, um, but you know, people know where to find me. You can email me. You can Facebook me, and, uh, and you can get my book on Amazon and BibleProphecy.com. Awesome, brother. Wow. Well, uh, I, that was an interesting program. I think that uh, a lot of people will be able to kind of go back over that and see some of the interesting things you brought out. Uh, what, just sure. uh, real quick, uh, what were a few of those books that you mentioned that uh, we sh that people should check out in terms of understanding the, maybe getting into the critical scholars or whatever you were mentioning? I think you were saying there were some books that people need to check out that's on some uh, interesting things. Well, Not there's a lot of books. Yeah. Yeah, you want me to go through some of the like some of the names that they should look at, or some of the book titles? Maybe just I names, because I don't know if you have the titles before you or not. But yeah, sure, sure. Well, I mean, there's there's a number. I mean, man, I could literally go through. Uh, <laughs> I could go through so many names right now. But um, but one of the one of the biggest things I'm doing right now is I'm purchasing a lot of books on on Revelation. 
just so that people, you know, from scholars, and you got a guy like G.K. Beale and Richard Bookham, and then you've got, um, um, oh, man, uh, what are some of the other ones? Oh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Hold on. Um, on Genesis, you've got um, uh, Stan Gundry. You've got James uh, Hoffmeller, um, Charles Halton. There's um, Margaret Barker, really good, really good scholar. Margaret Barker is really good. She does a lot of stuff on uh, symbolism and apocalyptic literature. Um, Margaret Barker is really good. She also does a lot. She explains a lot about temple mysticism and what the temple symbols mean. Um, um, she's really good. Um, there's, let's see, I'm trying to go through some of the really important ones that people should really get their hands on. Uh, P.J. Weissman um, is good. There's um, Craig Koester, uh, K-O-E-S-T-E-R. He does a good uh, Revelation commentary. Um, Bruce Chilton, he's pretty good. He has a book called Visions of the Apocalypse. I mean, man, I could literally, I could literally just go on and on and on. John yeah. J. Collins, he's that's okay. Uh, I would say there are a couple that I really recommend. John J. Collins uh, is a is a critical scholar who has a great apocalyptic um, resource on Jewish apocalyptic literature, but he also has a lot of other works that are really good. He's involved in critical scholarship right now. John J. Collins. Um, oh man, give me just a second and let me look at my list really quick and see if there's another. Um, Benjamin Warfield, and he's all right. There's, um, man, there's so many. I'll tell you what, if anybody is interested in getting a list of the scholars that I recommend as far as who's currently engaged in critical scholarship um, on issues like Pauline perspectives and covenant eschatology and um, and Jewish hermeneutics and things like that, Second Temple Thought and, and on the resurrection and so forth, um, if they if they either send me an email or send me a Facebook message or just join the Preterist Theological Society, and I have a there's a there's a comment that I have on that page where I listed those for people, um, or they can or I can post it again. But uh, if anybody is interested in getting a thorough list of scholars that I recommend, excuse me, that I recommend that you're not going to find at local seminaries, you're not going to hear pastors talk about, you're not going to hear at a local Bible college. These are guys that are really getting their hands dirty and really engaging with peer review work, and they're serious about what the Bible means. And uh, whether they believe in it or not, they're trying to figure out what does it mean, what did it mean, and what that means for us today. So uh, if you want that list of names, just let me know. Give me an email, and I can I can send you a whole bunch of them, books, names, you name it. Okay. Awesome, Joseph. Well, uh, what's your email again? Uh, email is let's see. Well, let me think of which one. The best one that you can probably email me at for this would be j, it's J O S L A U, the number twenty six at yahoo dot com. Again, it's J O S. It's the first three letters of my name, Joseph J O S, and then L A U, which are the first three letters of my wife's name, Lauren, and then the number twenty six at yahoo dot com. Awesome, brother. Thanks for coming on to the Bible Beacon broadcast, brother. We will definitely have you back on. We're going to go over some new stuff, and we'll uh, plan it out and set a date in the future when you're uh, not as busy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'm not as busy these days. Now that, yeah, now the sports are over, I'm good. <laughs> well, we'll plan it the next time. Uh, thanks a lot, brother. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for having me. I'll talk to you later. You too.
Uh, God bless. Well, there's Joseph Michael Vincent, guys. Joseph Michael Vincent and his book, The Millennium, Past, Present, or Future. And uh, hopefully you guys tune in next time to the Bible Beacon broadcast where we'll probably be talking about some crazy off-the-wall stuff, dealing with stuff, dealing with church history. Oh, man, we just love to just really test people and test the scriptures because we want people to see the truth. But you know how they are about certain things. I'm your host, Derek Lambert. And uh, until next time, enjoy your day. Bible Beacon Broadcast. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon.